New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Dr. Thomas Moore. He's the author of Care of the Soul and A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. Thomas, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you. You are encouraging us to not abandon religion altogether, so to speak, as many of us have been. But you're saying that for our soul's sake, we need to create a spirituality that is uniquely our own. So what's a suggestion you have for us to pursue this? what, What I say about it is, let's not abandon religion, but let's reimagine it from the ground up, really, really do an overhaul of how we understand religion. And uh, one way we do that is by appreciating the, the great traditions, the great uh, religions and, and other spiritual traditions, and even the not-so-great ones. I mean, whatever spiritual tradition is around there has something to offer us. I don't mean that a religion of one's own is just putting together a lot of pieces from the traditions but that we don't have to invent it all ourselves, that we can go to the traditions and find some ideas and some practices there and adapt them, use our imaginations freely and adapt them to our own ways of thinking and our own purposes and and our own practices. For example, you might go, like for me, being raised a Catholic, uh, I I used to go to confession and go into a, a little box and tell the priest, things I had done that I might be ashamed of or think were not the best. Well, I can do that today. I might be in circumstances where I can think, you know, the thing to do right now is to confess. Talking to a friend. Instead of hiding something, maybe this is the moment to confess. Well, that's taking that confession and making it something very ordinary and very simple. But I'm guided by and inspired by my tradition in the past. But I'm making it my own in my everyday life, and it can be something very meaningful. You say something that many of us uh, use this phrase, we'll say, oh, well, if you go into any religion, if you go into the deepest mystical part of it, they're all saying the same thing. You have a slight disagreement about that. I've never liked that idea. Okay, tell me about that. I've never liked it. I've never liked it, because, and I've argued with so many intelligent people about it. I don't like it because it seems to me that every religion is, it has its own identity. It's almost like saying because two or three people share something that they're identical, that they're like, essentially they're all the same. I don't think so. The religions are different. So for me to be raised a Catholic is not just about whether our sense of God might be something like someone else's sense of God, but that... Being raised a Catholic is entirely different, as far as I can see, from being raised a Buddhist or a Sikh or a Jain monk or something. You know, that's a whole different thing. So I would rather preserve the differences and yet say that what I talk about is the conviviality of religions. That because we're so different, then we have the opportunity to really enjoy each other. If we're all the same, we'll just have to fight. 
I mean, I, it, there's, no, there's no good in being all the same that I can see. Or that when you take away all the surface, then you get down to the commonality that we all share. I'd rather say even deep down we're different. And that means we can come together in an interesting way and share the differences that we have. That's what marriage means, coming together with differences, not sames. And I think religion should be that way. And speaking of marriage, then, you really talk about how marriage is a constantly an evolving thing. Like the way we set it up is that it's supposed to be stable and never change. Like here, now we get married and now we're going to stay the same. But that causes a lot of friction, doesn't it? It does. It causes a lot of friction. We, we have so many, I think, illusions about marriage. We think that, that we should be compatible in all things. I don't think so. It's asking too much. Um, that we should be committed I don't even like the word commitment myself, because to me it's moralistic. It's like saying, you should do this. You should make this promise. You will always be together. I know a monk. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him for years. And he told me once that every day in the morning he wakes up, he asks himself, do I want to be a monk any longer? Every day. And if the answer is no one of those days, it's goodbye. But so far he's been at it for about 30 years. You know, and he hasn't come to that point, but he's ready. And I think that is so much better than saying, I should be committed to this forever and ever, you know, and all of that. What he's saying is that I can choose every day. This is a daily thing. Who knows what tomorrow is and who I will be? So are there any ingredients, let's say, in a marriage that makes it work better for all parties? The word comes up for me is respect. It like might be respect oh, sure, or something sure. like that. Oh, sure, sure. There are that. lots of things that would be, yeah, would help. The issue that I always bring up about marriage is that that human beings are are so deep and complicated, extremely mysterious. We all have things going on in us that we don't even know ourselves about ourselves. So when you have two people come together, I think the most important thing is for one person to respect the other's mystery to respect that mysteriousness and realize that that person doesn't even know what's going on, rather than demanding that they be clear about what's happening in themselves and make commitments based on that. One of the things that I noticed in in my long-term marriage with Michael, who it's now many of our listeners know, has passed on, but we were together for 41 years. And one of the tensions in our relationship would be when either one of us would go away for a private retreat. And I know I would be tense because I knew that Michael would come back and he would not be the same. And he also knew that of me. I would come back and I would not be the same. And it was true. And we would have to do some sort of ritual to reintegrate our relationship with this newness of who we were with each other. And do, do you find that this, you've run across this in that your... That sounds system. good to me. I mean, <laughs> did it work for you? I mean, sometimes. 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 It sounds, it sounds good to me because, I mean, that's something that's very, very clear. If you go away, physically go away someplace, you're going to come back, especially with a retreat. You, you, the whole point is to change a little bit, probably. And you come back, you know you're going to change. But what about in the normal course of events? We're always changing, too. Yes. 
and developing and discovering things. And I think that the really, to me, I, I can't say I want everyone to think the same way I don't, but for me to be able to honor that difference and, and to do more than tolerate, to maybe even foster that kind of a change in the other person and allow that for myself as well. To me, that is essential in any kind of close relationship of human beings, including marriage. And, you know, we get to that place where we just want to, things feel so good, and we just want to spray fixative on it and just <laughs> sort of hang it on the wall and, and let it stop right there. I mean, yeah. that is our tendency when yeah. it feels so good. Sure. And to to just, you're asking us to relax and allow that evolving yes. and going yes. into the mystery where we don't know the outcome. Well, see, there's another idea here, too. It seems to me that marriage is sort of the template for the way we, we live as a society. Marriage is so important for the way society goes. Now, what if in society we did that, that we could tolerate these differences and not, not expect so much sameness and not expect lack of conflict, but to honor the conflicts that we have to go through in order to maintain that closeness that we have and, and base the closeness on the respect for each other's mystery. That's a big one, and I think I agree with you. I, I'm excited by that. It's not easy because we want basically to come to some yes. sort of cohesion, but to hang out with that difference and paradox, and we don't really quite agree or see it the same way, but that's going to be okay. And there maybe is like letting it unfold into a bigger mystery that we don't even know. You don't even know how what it's it is. Gonna, what it is. You know where I find this too is my practice as a therapist. When uh, when something happens that causes a real, it's like it's a real problem between me and my client. It doesn't happen too often, but once in a while. For example, maybe I forget a session. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Or you know, something is there's a mix-up or something like that, or if. The client has a problem that way, or who knows, might be something of that nature. Uh, I, I, of course, I'm always aware that this therapy is a ritual, very ritual type of activity. But I see that working out that conflict, whatever it is, is going to help this process so much. So I really go right into it. I mean, I have a tendency in life to back away from those conflicts. If I can avoid them, I'll do it. (laughs) But as a therapist, I don't. I go right into it because I know how important it's going to be. There's a richness there, isn't there? There You're going to grapple with something that you wouldn't ordinarily grapple with. It wouldn't even come up. But when you're rubbing against it, then they say grist for the mill, huh? Yes, because then that relationship then is uh, stronger than it was before. Right. One of the things that you use a lot in your therapy work and is very important to you is our dreams. Mm -hmm. So tell us, what are the importance of dreams? Uh, I can't do therapy without dreams very well. I try sometimes when people have trouble dreaming, but uh, most of the time I, I, I base all the work on the dreams. I do that because... I don't think that when a person tells a story, even if I were to tell my story, what's happening in my life, I don't think it's trustworthy because that story is being told right directly out of my fears and anxieties and conflicts. That's the whole thing. So when I listen to my client in therapy, 
I can't trust what they're saying totally that this is what's going on because it's being filtered through all of their concerns and their habits and ways of looking at things. I would call their complexes. Right. So I can't do that. But the dreams give me a really clear picture. As difficult as they are to interpret, then the dream gives me a picture, though, at a deep level of what's happening. And I trust that more, much more than, than what the person's telling me. And then when together we work on the dream and talk about it and gradually let the dream unfold and reveal itself to us, that's a very rich, very deep revelation to both of us of what's going on and what's happening. In almost every instance, it gives us a new insight into what's happening and into, into the problems a person's grappling with on the surface. But it's a different way of thinking that between us, just talking rationally, we would never come up with. I'm reminded of a dream circle that I was part of for quite a few years where we would sit in circle and someone would tell their dream, give an image. Well, actually, they wouldn't tell it. They would sing their dream. They actually sang their dream. And then we would sing back parts of that dream after their initial singing of the the dream images. And it was this kind of cacophony of different images mm. coming back to the dreamer. And so there was no interpretation, but it was a kind of process that that was beyond the rational interpreting. Yes, definitely. This is something I learned so much from my friend Hillman, James Hillman, because he wrote a book on, called Dream in the Underworld about dreaming, where he says that we should not bring a dream up into our consciousness. We should bring our consciousness down into the dream, ah. you know, because we need to be instructed by the dream. And that's what I was saying. That's how I feel about the dream work. So I like the idea of finding some alternative to this rational interpretation to working with the dreams. I've never tried the singing part. I have worked in groups where we don't know who the dreamer is. I like that. And we bring in the dreams and put, you know, the papers with the dreams on them in the middle of the room. And then we just pick one up with no names and work the dream because there's a tendency to focus too much on the dreamer rather than the dream. Right. Similarly, when I teach, I teach psychiatrists quite often now. And uh, I get a group of psychiatrists, let's say about 60 of them usually. And every morning we work a dream or two. And they're all making contributions. I used to worry about that because people used to say a lot of things that seemed to me didn't help too much. But I've become to really trust that. So we all just talk the dream through and we ask the dreamer, you know, to react at times. But it's a wonderful, rich, deep practice. A year ago, I began this uh, program where I lead retreats for golfers in Ireland. And every morning before we go to play golf, we do dream work for an hour. And then we go and play golf. And then in the evening we come back, we have dinner together, and then we have a little, I give a little talk about the psychology of what's going on and about golf, the deeper meaning of golf and all that. But we do the dream work, and it's so interesting to see the dream work right before the play. How does it affect the play? It changes the level at which the play is done. I mean, it, what you're doing by waking up in the morning, that's kind of a ritual. So you get your group together and you have this dream thing. You, you could have just a discussion. You could have meditation. You could do a lot of things. I like the dream work because it takes your whole 
your whole perspective deepens by looking at the dream. You stop looking at everything on the surface level and you begin to get into the images. And then you go out and maybe you begin to discover that golf is a kind of dream. Ah. As all play and game is anyway. So the relation between play, that kind of play, and dream is very, very close. Much closer than between play and rational thought. Beautiful. Thomas, we could go on and on. I'm just so grateful for your being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justine. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Thomas Moore. He's the author of A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to the website careofthesoul.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you to please join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.